thank you, Tiffany, for agreeing to be on my show. Um, I always get these kind of little work crushes on other copywriters, and especially because I'm quite new in the, the copywriting industry. So when I have any kind of interaction with <laughs> with people who've been doing it for a long time, I get kind of a little bit giddy. So please, please excuse my starstruckness if that comes across at all. Yes. I would welcome any starstruckness. <laughs> uh, I encourage giddiness, starstruckness, and crushes in general. So oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'll take it where I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to set the scene and tell us a little bit about yourself and give a brief overview as to what it is that you do? Um, obviously, in my preamble, I mentioned that you're a copywriter, but you do a lot um, more than that. Um, so I'm currently a corporate copywriter. Uh, which means that I specialize in writing about companies rather than about retail products or FMCGs. I don't do any of the sort of sexy Lurie award-winning stuff. I've never been to any awards. <laughs> <laughs> I stay in my office and I write about companies and people who work at companies. And I've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, this is my 16th year. And a couple of years into the writing, I was, I'll tell you that story a bit later, but I was so lonely <laughs> as a copywriter working from home in my little room that I branched out into training purely because I wanted company. And then the training business started about three years into the writing business and, and I've sort of run them side by side ever since. Before I went on my own, which was in 2005, I worked at a small publishing company uh, as the assistant editor first and then the editor, um, educational publishing which I absolutely loved. It was my first sort of real, real grown-up job. But what happened was I left unexpectedly when I discovered that my fellow directors were siphoning funds out of the company account. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was very, very young at the time, so it took me a while to twig. <laughs> but I also realized that as a director, I was technically liable to any creditors. And so I packed up a little box of all my shit, and I got into my car, and I went home, and I never went back. And so I found myself unemployed and went off to see a business coach. And she told me to start on my own. I was 25. And I said, there, there is no way that I'm going to go on my own. I don't have that sort of personality. I'm not entrepreneurial. I want to have a job and a bus and a desk and a parking bay and all that. You know, I thought she was quite a shit business coach. <laughs> and what I, did, what I did was I intended to go back into publishing. But while I was waiting you know, in, in between interviews, I sent out an email and basically spammed everyone I knew and said, you know, I'm available part-time for writing and editing work, you know, until I find the right thing. Mm. And within three months, I was too busy to go for interviews. Within six months, I had doubled my salary and I never stopped. Oh, wow. So it happened quite quickly for you because some people say, you know, it's the five-year mark and other people say that it's that magical three-year for... Uh, for your own company like if you've did it in like three months that's that's fantastically quick you know what Megan I think that that three-year five-year thing is complete bullshit um I, I don't know where it came from and I think that it's probably more the sort of small business with high overheads model rather than the freelance model because mm. every freelancer I've ever met certainly the ones I've mentored and and all of the really good ones start matching this, at least matching their salary within months of going on their own. I think it's the businesses that have overheads and cash flow challenges that, that typically take three years to be, you know, established. Um, but 
for low overhead businesses, certainly strategy consulting and freelance businesses, I think if you can't hack it in three years, you should get a job. Well, I mean, in, in this climate, uh, now with COVID, with everyone kind of being retrenched and companies closing down and that kind of thing, I do think that freelancers have got the kind of leg up or like you say, low overhead business because you just have to kind of push on. You've got your clients and that kind of thing. Whereas big companies, I've got a lot of mates that are sitting in corporate and they don't know if they're going to have a job after all of this. And, you know, they've kind of got entrenched careers in those fields. So I do think like freelancing is a, it's a lot more flexible and it's a lot more agile to try and get yourself up and running quickly. There's a trade-off, I think. And the trade-off is between when you go on your own, when you leave a job, you lose the security, I suppose you could say, of, of the same salary every month, potentially of a 13th check, of medical cover and a provident fund, uh, and maybe the odd perk here and there, you know, car allowance or cell phone or whatever. So you lose, you lose that. But the trade-off is that when you go freelance, you, you become largely unretrenchable. And if you make sure that you um, don't have too many big retainers, um, but rather that you have a number of, of retainers of different sizes, then it's extremely hard to lose all your work overnight. You know, the same diversification that they talk about in the stock market, I think is important in a freelance client base. Mm. And the more diversified you are um, in terms of your clients and in terms of your skills, then the less retrenchable you become. So you buy back some of that security, I think. This is a great segue into uh, my next question, which is uh, you've obviously found the optimal kind of sweet spot between diversifying and niche. In terms of the, the, the services that you offer, as well as, like you say, your clients, how do you find that balance? Because certain people you speak to say that the closer you get to a niche, the, that's where the money is. And other people say, no, well, you need to spread your risk a little bit more, diversify, have a couple of different skills, go into a couple of different industries. So how do you find that balance? How do you find that sweet spot? It's actually not a balance. Um, again, it's a trade-off. So I'm a huge fan of niching because I believe that the more specialized you are, the more you can charge because there are fewer people who do what you do. But I'm also a big fan of diversifying, not in, in what I do, but who I offer it to. So let me explain, because I don't know if that was, I don't know if I explained that very well, considering I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> what I mean is my niche is corporate. So I largely work in business to business writing and I serve clients who are in some kind of corporate service environment, whether that is financial services, wealth management, insurance, medical schemes, law and tech. So that's my niche from a from a writing point of view, corporate and, and corporate services. But diversification-wise, I don't just write about law. I write about tech and healthcare and medical, da da da, da. Yeah. And then across my client base, I'm very diversified. So I will work for a one-man show who lives, you know, in Nelspreit and works out of his garage running a, an accounting business, and I'll work for Deloitte or, or you know, yeah. Uh, Accenture or Discovery or R&B. Mm. So I diversify client size. Um, I diversify across the different sort of silos of corporate services and I diversify from a writing and training point of view. And that wasn't, I'd love to pretend that that was strategic and I did it on purpose, but I really didn't. It evolved by itself. And now I get to go on podcasts and pretend that I did it all deliberately, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> It just happened, and, and now it makes it makes me look very clever. But really, the training business evolved out of loneliness. The niching evolved out of demand, 
and the diversification happened because I'm easily bored and need variety and I'm commitment phobic. Obviously, if you are, you know, with, with regards to the training, how do you kind of structure your intake in, uh, in terms of your pipeline, for example? How do you balance between the writing and the training? Because I know being a, a copywriter and a freelancer myself, you'll go through periods, well, uh, you probably don't have this problem, but I go through periods where I have like nothing coming in for a couple of weeks and then I get crushing deadlines all in like the space of two or three weeks and it seems to be a cycle that repeats itself. And that's just juggling copywriting. So if you've got the training stuff, obviously that's a little bit more scheduling involved there. So how do you, how do you balance the two in terms of your pipeline to make sure that you are not crushed one day and then sitting with nothing to do the next so one of the things that i found and again this is going to make me hopefully sound very very clever um (laughs) is that my training business and my right the two arms of my business respond to what happens in the economy so for the last 11 years when the economy does well comparatively speaking the training side of the business does well because people want to invest in their people and my training business comes out of the learning and development budget or the HR budget, right? Or the, or the skills development budget. And the writing business is comparatively quiet when the economy is doing well. When the economy is in the toilet, the writing business does extremely well. That money typically comes out of the marketing budget or the advertising budget and the training business dies. So over the last 11 years, there's really never been a time when the writing and training businesses were busy at the same time because okay. we had... I started my business in 2005. Um, I started training in 2007. We had the recession in 2008, which only hit me in 2009. Then everything was sort of hunky-dory for a while. And then there was a sort of a flat period in 2014. And then, the, and then there was the coronavirus. So this is the first year in my career that the training business and the writing business are busy at the same time. And the only reason for that is that training has moved online and that it's the new thing. So I don't, I don't think that's a new norm. I think that when everybody calms down a bit and stops getting hysterical about webinars, um, it'll go back to being either a busy writing time or a busy training time. Mm. So it just just sort of happened. And it took me a couple of years to recognize the pattern, but that sort of prevented me being overwhelmed until now. Fortunately or unfortunately, training and writing are both in demand at the moment. So I am overwhelmed. And one thing I'm very, very shit at is getting clients to approve quotes when it suits me. So what they'll do is they'll hold on to a quote for weeks and then six of them will approve them all and pay deposits on the same day. And then, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this and then you've got seven deadlines, two weeks away, all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure at managing that because I feel like once the clients paid the deposit and signed the quote, I'm more or less on a bound to stick to the deadline that I promised. But what I've done now, instead of being a chop and saying, the delivery date is X. I say the delivery date is X many working days from deposit payment. So I buy myself a little bit of time there um, because I've been burned so many times by by everybody approving everything at the same time. The other answer to your question about overwhelm is that I haven't really had a quiet month ever except 2009. Um, There was a three month period where my mom was very ill um, and that sort of coincided with the recession, the 2008 recession hitting my business. So I took three months off to be with her and I saw a sort of 25, I didn't take three months off totally, but I I slowed down a lot and I saw a 25 to 30% 
drop in revenue. And then that happened again a little bit in 2014. There were three quiet months. And again, at the end of 2017, there were a few quiet months there. Yeah. But quiet months are, are lovely because I'm so burnt out the rest of the time that I, I quite like them. Yeah. I mean, I hope I should not would. I hope that's not, I hope I'm not jinxing myself, but they do give me a little bit of a rest, which I'm not uh, disciplined enough to give myself. Do you not worry? Because this is a, a worry for me personally. And, I, and maybe it's because my business is not as, as established as you that, um, you know, you, you like you say, you reach that point of burnout, you need a break. But I'm worried when I'm not working that I'm not generating future business for myself. And that's kind of, like you say, one of the trade-offs when you work for yourself is that you're never really not working because even when you're not working, you're still thinking about work and you're still concerned about finances and, um, you know, future business coming in. Well, it's never happened so far. Okay. <laughs> what happens is in August of every year, I'm so shattered that I have a huge meltdown. <laughs> My husband will back, back me up. In August, I have a massive meltdown. Luckily or unluckily, August is when my daughter is on holiday from school for a month. So we usually just pack up all our shit and go to the coast. And then I sort of work half day there for a couple of weeks and, and you know, build my, my brain up again. But it's not, that's not a plan. That's just, that's just silly. I don't know that I necessarily have a solution. What I can tell you, though, is that that fear that you have that you can't take any time off because every hour should technically be billable so that you buy yourself freedom later. That's, that's a complete fallacy. Any time, and, I, and I say this with my tongue in my cheek because I don't take my own advice, but any time you take off from work is an investment in your future work because your future work gets better the more room you give your brain. Yeah. So I'm saying this, but I don't do it. I'm telling you to do this. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so what we do as new freelancers is that we we don't take any time off because we're very conscious of the cost of that time off. Yeah. You know, we can actually, we can quantify it in real income lost. But over time, you'll stop doing that because A, it's dumb, B, it's not sustainable, and, and C, you will find that the more gaps you give your, your brain and your work to breathe, the better it becomes and the better you become. And you will also become so quick over time that you'll be able to do a lot more work in less time. So what I mean by that is before I became a mom, I would work for about 12 hours a day um, from seven to seven, five days a week. And then when I had my daughter, I worked for about six hours a day and I got the same volume of work done in half the time. Jeez, so okay. you, over time, you become faster and better. Yeah. Um, now I work about 10 hours a day, but that's only because I don't go to meetings anymore. I don't, I mean, I don't go anywhere yeah. <laughs> and I don't do anything other than work. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking this morning that I, that's ridiculous and I, I really do not want to be working 10 hours a day. So I'm going to probably start dialing that back to about eight. In terms of your client base, how did you build that up? I'm focusing a lot of my energy on networking and trying to, um, to make contacts and, and grow my base, not necessarily of clients, but, you know, uh, of potentially referrals and that kind of thing that uh, could swing work my way. How important is it belonging to an organization such as Safrio? And how important is networking to what you do? Do you do networking on the side? Um, does any business come out of Safrio for you? You know, what is the comparison between an organization and um, just like grindstone networking like a normal corporate? Uh, the, the word networking fills me with horror. Um, <laughs> so, so even though I have a big mouth and huge opinions, I'm also quite introverted. So the idea of networking consciously is just the worst thing I can possibly imagine. 
I don't do any of that grindstone networking because I, I don't like it and B, I don't believe in it. I think that that kind of deliberate networking is quite empty and unrewarding on both sides. But I've belonged to Safria as long as I've been a freelancer, so 15 years this year, and other organizations along the way, but I've left all of them except Safria. And the reason that I love Safria so much is not for networking purposes and not for work opportunities, but because of the intellectual resources available to me daily. Um, Safria has a a wealth of, of smart, smart people who will give generously of their advice and experience at the drop of a hat. Woof, that was like seven cliches in one sentence. <laughs> um, uh, the, yeah, it's just, a, it's an amazing intellectual resource and it's a huge, a hugely valuable sounding board for me and always has been. And there are people there um, that I trust and, and that will be honest, you know. And as a solo practitioner, it's lovely to have a community. I've never got any work from it for two reasons. One, I'm very, very, very specialized. So the kind of work that comes into Safria is usually not high level strategic Mm. from a copywriting point of view. It's either journalistic or media orientated, which is not my area, or it's slightly lower budget than than I would consider, Mm. or the timing is so tight that I can't do it. So one of the things I'm not is flexible from a timing point of view because I take on jobs quite far in advance and so I'm never able to do a last minute I mean I'll do it for my regulars but I won't do it for an unknown that comes in you know via a portal Um, so I've never been able to leverage any work opportunities but what does happen is because I've got such a big mouth and because I'm so vocal within Safria I do get a lot of referral work so if a very high level strategic piece of content needs to be written and the writer who has it can't do it they'll often refer the client to me so that happens a lot but networking is awful I don't network I just I just market and by marketing I mean I write prolifically so I write for biz community mark lives um, I'm always putting stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook um, and that's how I network by giving away advice okay. that's my only form of networking that, that works for me the, the idea of going to like a, a BNI meeting or a one of those morning things. I just could think of nothing worse. <laughs> then I just climb up and people say, "What do you do for a living?" And I sort of say, "You know, slalom, water skiing, and croquet." I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, um, the I used to get like that cold sweat when someone said networking and I've kind of been forced very much out of my comfort zone because this is a new business and I've had to kind of break out and try and really market myself in terms of meeting people because while I write for the digital space and uh, you know I know understand the value of SEO and, and marketing and that kind of thing I find that it hasn't provided any feedback in terms of work that's come in for me it hasn't built a digital network the way that face-to-face or you know well now it's whatever screen to screen has um has done for me but on that point you mentioned marketing do you produce all your own content or do you kind of collate from sources as well how do you market yourself without becoming too spammy now you've mentioned several different channels, creating individual content for every single platform. I mean, that's a full-time job in itself as a, as a freelancer or as an individual um, business owner. You have to produce all that content yourself in addition to keeping up with your workload and servicing clients and all that kind of thing. So could you delve into what you do in terms of your marketing, how you prevent it from becoming spammy? I'd be quite interested to get your take on that. So first and foremost, I consider any piece of marketing that I do to be a kind of a portfolio. So I write it all myself, every word. When I do curate content, 
I usually only um, quote chunks of other people's wisdom. So I might quote Seth Godin or Andy Bounds or Nick Osborne or, you know, locals, Rich Mulholland, Mike Sharman. Um, and and I'll, I'll cite a paragraph that they've, you know, that I've found of theirs that I think is amazing and I'll usually link, I'll link it back to them. So that's what I call curated content, which is chunks of other people's wisdom that I gather all the time. So I'm always reading, always, always, and, and finding stuff and then parking it in a, in, a, in a notes file for later. So that's the curated stuff. The longer form stuff is all original and it's all written by me because I don't keep a, an up-to-date portfolio of work. And the reason that I don't do that is because the bulk of the work that I do is subject to very stringent non-disclosure agreements that I sign with my clients, that they make me sign, not that I volunteer to sign, um, which means that I very often can't share any content that I've written for money. I do a lot of ghostwriting. I do a lot of um, ghostwritten thought leadership, a lot of strategic internal work, and, and they don't want anyone to see it. So I can't maintain a portfolio. And so I use my opinions and my um, columns to do that sort of but also to give people a sense of what I'm like because I'm quite bullshy and loud and 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 if if people aren't comfortable with my personality they're not going to like working with me so I try very hard to to use that persona the persona that exists in my writing to give people a sense of what I'm like in person and if that scares them then I'm not the right writer. So there is an element of, uh, I suppose, segmentation in the way that I market from that point of view. But in terms of the, the, the burden of marketing, I use different social media platforms for very different things. So YouTube, I don't use as often as I should. Um, I use for very quick tutorial videos and I usually only do one, you know, every kind of other month, I'll do a little short one. Facebook, I have two communities on Facebook and very different content goes into each. The one is my writing and training one. So it's Tiffany Markman writing and training. And that's largely fellow writers, existing clients, past clients, and, and sort of acquaintances from the writing and training world. And there I speak largely about writing and training. And then I have a freelancing one called Rockstar Freelancing for Real People, where I only talk about freelancing related stuff. LinkedIn, I only use for training. So, well, what I mean is I, I use LinkedIn to market my, myself as a trainer and speaker, not as a writer. So the content that goes there is training based. Twitter, I do very little conscious work on Twitter these days. I, it's it's a, a vacuum of noise and rage. So, I, you know, I don't really use Twitter much. And Instagram, I use for personal stuff mostly, but I'll throw the odd work thing on there every now and then. So it's Instagram's mostly like cute animals, bats, skulls, and art. Like, <laughs> I love bats, I love skulls. I, you know, I'm not a goth, but I love like I like creepy things. <laughs> um, so there are obviously overlaps between the Facebook content and the LinkedIn content because I teach writing and I'm a writer. So I, you know, yeah. but but I'm quite strategic about what goes where. Um, it could not be done without scheduling software. Mm. So I use a, um, a post scheduler that I populate in advance, usually on a Sunday. Um, and then I schedule all my posts, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, a week in advance, or okay. sometimes a couple of months in advance. And then they go out automatically at different times of the day, which also helps me to talk to markets in other countries because I do some work in Switzerland the UAE, Spain, England, Jordan. So I do like to, you know, talk to the yeah. other countries in the time zone as well. But also I think because I've been writing for so long, I have so much content <laughs> that that keeping social media populated with advice is easy because I, I'm, you know, there's just I've just got this repository of 
of advice. And yeah. that's what I believe social media is. So yeah, so I don't use social media for promotion. In other words, I almost never speak about my products and services online. People know where to find me if they want to buy a website. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so I don't sell any of my products and services online unless I have a course coming up, at which, at which point I'll, I'll talk about it on social media. But nine out of 10 posts is just purely sharing advice and okay. tips and how-tos and, and I enjoy it. I love marketing myself. Yeah, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, that's I mean, what I do in my daytime. How often do you post? I, I follow you on Instagram, and I've seen it's like a couple times a week. You you don't post that often. No, Instagram is largely neglected. I, I opened it quite a long time ago, but I had one post until about a year ago. I only started really delving into Instagram about a year ago, and I neglect because I, I don't. I'm not a visual. You know, I'm not a photographer, or a graphic designer, or an illustrator. So because I don't produce visual work, Instagram doesn't really work for me for work. Um, but on LinkedIn and Facebook, I, I post often. So I post a minimum of five times a week, usually closer to ten times a week. So about twice a day during the week on LinkedIn and Facebook. Twitter only when I have something to say. Instagram very seldom. YouTube not often enough. And then I send out a newsletter on an ad hoc basis. So about once a month or so. I found the once a month newsletter works quite well. It just kind of reminds people that you're there. But uh, when I was working um, corporate with uh, one of our competitors was sending out a mailer every single day, otherwise twice a week. I just, it, it just becomes too, too much. It's too spammy. No, yeah. I do an audit often. I, I'll often sit. In fact, I did one now before, before I, I got into this call with you. I go through and I unsubscribe en masse from things that, that bug me. Yeah. There are very few newsletters that I will read every time and that I'll read all the way to the bottom. They're about four. The rest must go. They mustn't talk to me more than once a month. I'm not interested. Like no one has that much value to add to my life. <laughs> I find I tend to subscribe to mailers um, because something's sparked my interest and then I never read the subsequent mail. That no. I just I get busy and you put it in a file to address at a later stage and then like a year later, you've got like a thousand unread marketing emails that you now just are going to delete. So I, I follow very strictly what I call inbox 12. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that I can't go to bed at night until I have only 12 emails in my inbox and they must all be read. <laughs> I use my inbox as a to-do list. Everything else gets read, deleted or filed. And I, I literally will not go to bed until I get to inbox 12. And when I woke up this morning, I was at like inbox 67 and nearly had a heart attack. By the time we jumped on this call, I'll tell you how many there are. 33 in my inbox. They've all been read and they will be, there will be 12 in there by the time I go to bed tonight. <laughs> You're a better person than me because um, yeah, uh, my, my emails, it's not so much now, but uh, back in the day that it was like a slot machine and you just, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I tried the filing thing. I've tried the keeping it in the inbox as a to-do list and uh, you're quite right. As long as, as soon as it goes below the fold, you don't see those emails anymore. So yeah. Anyway, I've, we've gone quite off track. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So you've obviously been um, copywriting. You, you said you've been in the business for the last 15 years. You've obviously faced quite a lot of challenges. You kind of delved a little bit into that. Uh, you said that the recession, the, 20, uh, uh, the 2008 recession hit you in uh, 2009. You, you said you had another little period. Was it 2014 that was pretty quiet? How have you managed to survive over the course of your career? Obviously, you don't want for clients, but you do have those dips every now and again in terms of your um, 
um, your busyness. Um, have you got any tips on how you can really roll with the punches or, or kind of prepare yourself to absorb a, a, a downturn in activity in the business and how you go about bouncing back after a bad pitch? When you initially asked me this question, I stopped and thought about it for a bit, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I thought about where the big scary stages were in my business over the last couple of years. So I started in 2005, 2009, the 2008 recession hit me, but that wasn't stressful because my mom was ill and I wanted the time off. So I, I quite welcomed it. Yeah. 2014, the dip was quite small. It was not something that slowed me down in any way. But then at the end of 2017, I lost a big retainer. Now, I was always very, very anti-retainer clients my whole career until I was offered one so big that I couldn't turn it down. At the time, it was 50% of my income every month and it, 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 my income grew, so it became about a third, but it was a huge chunk of my income and I lost that retainer after about four years. Quite unexpectedly, the marketing director resigned and the new marketing director brought in her own people. And so it was four different subsidiaries of a listed company, and I was getting a, an equal retainer from each of the four. And of course, I lost the whole lot. Yeah. Um, and 20, by then, 20 to 30% of my income disappeared at the end of 2017. So much so that I got an email from SARS to say, excuse me, Tiffany, what the hell has happened to your income? They thought <laughs> I was dodging on the tax. And I said, no, actually, I you know, lost a big client and whatever. Yeah. So the beginning of 2018 was pretty rough. And, and it gave me a beautiful break emotionally, mentally, intellectually. I mean, I was still busy with my other clients, but I, my income took a massive, massive knock. Mm. And the only way to bounce back from that is to have an emergency fund. And, and I know that this has become a, a popular thing to talk about now in the context of COVID-19, but I've had one forever. I've had one since... My first, since my baby was born because I needed to pay for my own maternity leave yeah. um, as an employed person. So without an emergency fund, you absolutely cannot roll with the punches. There's no, there's no room to roll. Yeah. You need three months minimum of your usual income, but ideally six months of your usual income in an interest-bearing account, like a money market account with your bank. It, it, you know, at its peak, it would earn about 6.25%. Now it's earning about I don't know, five and a half. But um, you got to have that because otherwise you don't have the room to ride out the, the wave. Can't, honestly, can't recommend that highly enough. It's more important than an RA. It's more important than, you know, investing in the markets. It's more important than a tax-free investment account. You've got to have an emergency fund. Yeah. Once your emergency fund is in place, then I would suggest a tax-free savings account, tax-free investment account, then potentially an RA or some kind of discretionary investment. But a freelancer without an emergency fund is playing with fire. And a freelancer with too many big retainers is also playing with fire. Because if you can lose 25% of your income with a loss of one client, that's the kind of risk I, I can't, you know, I can't sleep yeah. at night with those kind yeah. of risks. Cool. Um, no, just on retainers, I work with a lot of ad hoc clients. I don't have a single retainer. Uh, all of my work comes in ad hoc and I've been extremely fortunate up until this point that um, it's been able to help me make ends meet and that kind of thing. Do you suggest getting retainers? Because I, I'm concerned in terms of once you've signed a retainer, you've got um, obligations to that client and then it reduces your ability to take on additional clients on an ad hoc basis. What What is your feeling retainers versus ad hoc? Uh, I've, I've always, if you'd asked me that five or six years ago, I would have said retainers be damned uh, because I, I'm, as I said, commitment phobic. So I like the variety of working for ad hoc clients. 
I don't really like to work on any one job for more than a month. Um, so any sort of contract work is just awful. But over the last couple of years, I have accepted retainer work and my retainers are small. You know, the, the retainer work that I do have, they're little. They're like probably at most a tenth of my income at the biggest. The biggest one is probably a tenth of my income. Um, and there are about three or four of those. And some are really small. Some are like four grand a month. And I don't, I don't do them out of choice. I'll do them only if the client really wants them. And I'll tell you why that is, because the clients don't take them all that seriously. And as freelancers, if a client reneges on the retainer agreement, we're not going to take them to court. Who could be bothered? We just let it go. So they don't give us all that much security in, in a, any real sense. You know, it's just a number of hours in your month that you pre-allocate. The, the reason a lot of my clients want retainer work is because I get busy quickly. So if they want me to turn something around overnight or at very short notice or to shuffle other work to accommodate them, they need to either be such a regular that they've been with me for years or on retainer. So I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a client that keeps me on retainer. Let's see how it's about a probably 7% of my income retainer. And um, I've been on it for about three or four years. Okay. Um, and it entitles them to a certain number of hours. No, not hours, because I was clever. A certain volume of output a month. But very often they don't get to that level of output, which means that I usually owe them a couple of hours a month. Yeah. And so I'm very strict about if, if they need something. I got a call from the guy at Hopper 7 last night. He said, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but we need something tomorrow morning. Mm. And normally, if it was a new client, I would say, Absolutely not. Yeah. But because they keep the retainer and actually I owe them hours and they're never sticky about claiming the hours that I owe them, I delivered it at 8 o'clock this morning because yeah. that's, that's what your loyalty buys. It buys my loyalty. So the answer to your question, I think I, I gave you a very roundabout answer, which is there's absolutely nothing wrong with the bulk of your work being ad hoc. Only give a retainer if you want one. Um, but you don't have to. There's absolutely no need to chase retainer work. Okay. Because I'm I'm pretty risk averse, and so my my entire life has been kind of I need a stable income. My parents are like if you looked up risk averse in the dictionary, it would be a picture of my parents. So um, already. <laughs> um, so this is it, it's this is like out of character. I have a slightly bigger risk appetite than other people in my family, but you know it's you can't break with that genetic strain in you. So, um, you know, I, I, as soon as you've got a retainer, you've got that guaranteed income, but I don't know. You, if, don't, um, you don't have any guarantees. You don't have any guarantees unless no. you have an airtight contract and a huge budget for, for fighting when they breach it, you know, I, you, you don't, nothing is a guarantee. Even, a, even an airtight corporate SLA has no guarantee of anything. Mm. I don't really believe in contracts. I don't really care what the contract is. Like, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you very much for um, for that. So the job market is essentially a bloodbath at the moment. There's obviously been massive attrition in a lot of different industries, and what I've seen, especially in the freelance space, is that there's this surplus of creatives that are floating around competing for just a limited amount of work. Now, again, I saw your posts the other day on LinkedIn that said that you haven't seen an impact from COVID-19. In fact, it's been the opposite that you've I have. I have. I've seen an increase in my revenue, yes, 29%. How do you differentiate your business to stand out from, and this is obviously not just a COVID-19 related um, issue, you, you need to stand out from the crowd. So how do you differentiate yourself? The only way to differentiate yourself in a market where there are lots of people who at surface level look just like you 
is by changing, by making the how of what you do stand out more than the what of what you do. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is because of, of retrenchment and because there are so many freelancers floating around and so many of them are graphic designers or developers or, or writers or editors, and, and we, we all offer much the same service, I think. The only way to stand out is to do what you do differently. Your how needs to be different. So your, your service levels need to be better. Your marketing needs to be more impressive. Your invoice template needs to be more professional. The, the consistency of the, of the output that you produce has to be better. You have to either be quicker or more strategic. So if you can't offer fast turnaround and make that a selling point, then it has to be high-level strategic work. You've got to not race to the bottom. And what I mean by that is, Try not, if possible, try not to compete on price because mm. you can't beat a cheapie. Yeah. You, you can't beat the, you know, you, it's a race to the bottom. You, if you're a real freelancer, you are not an Upwork or Fiverr freelancer. You're not an Elance freelancer. That gig economy website portal, $5 for a corporate profile thing is complete bullshit and it's bad for the industry. And if you race to the bottom, you won't get good work. You'll get shit work. Um, we also, as freelancers, need to learn to quote for value, not for time. An hourly rate is not a good idea. Um, just because you can do something in half an hour doesn't mean you should get paid for half an hour. You should still get paid for the 10 or 15 years it took you to be able to do the thing in half an hour. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's about positioning. You have to differentiate your positioning rather than what you actually offer. Because I'm a good writer. I know of lots of writers better than me. In fact, I'm married to a writer who's more talented than I am, but he doesn't have the writer's discipline. He doesn't market. He doesn't... Um, think strategically and so he doesn't he that's not what he does he's a much better writer than me but he could never build a business out of writing and there are lots of writers like that there are lots of writers out there that I look at their work and I think by god I can't write like that on my best day but I'm a better business person yeah because I take business very seriously the language of business I'm serious about the way my brand comes across the the way I speak about work so I'll never say I'm on my way home when I talk to a client, I'll say I'm on my way back to the office. The office is in my house. Yes. I'll, I'll never say I'm at the swimming gala. I'll say I'm on an appointment. Yeah. Um, I never go on holiday. I take leave. Mm. You know, so I'm very, very specific about the language that I use. I'm very strict about deposits and quotes being signed and uh, everything in writing and one set of changes. And, and I think that when, when you are firm on those things, you are taken more seriously and you differentiate the how of what you do, not the why of or the what. But also you have to develop thick skin. And that's easy for me to say because I am quite thick skinned. It's very hard to offend me. Like I, it takes a lot for me to get offended. You, you can't be precious as a, as a freelancer. You've got, to, you've got to be quite, you know, you've got to have a strong hide. But another thing, and I don't, I mean, I, this, yeah, I may, be, I may be telling you too much, but who cares? Let's make it authentic. <laughs> One of the best motivators in the world is fear. So I come from a background in which as a child, we were very under-resourced financially. We, we struggled money-wise when I was very little and for many years. And the fear of, of poverty is an unbelievably powerful motivator yeah. because I will never have my furniture repossessed again and I will never have the sheriff at the door again and I will never dodge phone calls from, uh, I don't know, Edgar's accounts again. You know, all the stuff you grow up with that you, I'll never buy a car and finance it. Never, never, ever, ever, because then they can take it away. So fear is a wonderful motivator and it forces you to keep your head down no matter what the punches are. So if you, if you grew up poor, 
then I find you do better in situations like this than if you grew up comfortable. So obviously now we always, as freelancers, business owners, we need to be looking for the so-called next opportunity. How do you prime yourself to see an opportunity? Because that's advice that a lot of people have given me. And, you know, you hustle and like I mentioned earlier, you go to networking events and you're always looking for that little crack in somebody's what they say or you know to to give you an in but that's not necessarily the best way to find an opportunity because um i can't stand going to an event and somebody is not interested in you they just want your money so um obviously trying to find opportunity how do you do it in like an ethical way maybe that's a good way to put it so as i said previously i hate networking events i could literally think of nothing worse i'd have to be so blind drunk to enjoy myself that it wouldn't be professional so i don't go (laughs) um when i do go or when i find myself at an event that turns out to be a networking opportunity what i usually do is i focus only on giving value only so i i i don't self-promote at all. I only give advice when asked for it. And when not asked for it, I'll offer it. So if you go into a networking event for what you can give rather than what you can get, you tend to enjoy yourself more because it uplifts you. But also then take the onus off yourself of not being a dickhead, right? So, you know, again, I'm, I'm probably unlike a lot of the people you've interviewed in that I don't look for opportunity. And even when one presents itself, I look at it very much in context. So if it's an opportunity, but it's, it's something that I would have to prejudice my existing commitments in order to maximize, I won't do it. Do you know what I mean? I've turned down work that could probably have been amazing opportunities because I was already overcommitted. I'm not agile enough to, to grab quick opportunities when they arise. What I do do is I believe that I can do a thing even if I've never done it. So if I'm asked to do something that I've never done before, provided that I'm almost 100% sure that I can do it, I will do it. So I'll give you an example. My very, very first web copywriting job was in about 2006. I'd never written, I mean, websites were not a big thing then, and I'd never written a website before. And the Coca-Cola Africa Foundation approached me and said, can you write our website? And I said, sure. You know, thankfully, they didn't ask if I'd ever done one. (laughs) And, uh, And they said, well, what will you charge? And I had no idea. And in those days, I was 26. I was still living at home. You know, Jewish girls like me never leave home until we get married. So I was still living at home. Um, And I say that with irony. We really should leave home, but we don't. Um, So I was still living at home and sharing a little two-bedroom apartment with my mom. And my bedroom was so tiny that I couldn't fit a desk and a double bed in the room. So I had a single bed and a desk. And that's where I ran my business for years. And so there I was. And and I, I sort of shouted down the passage to my mom, who was in her room, which was like a sneeze away from me. And I said, Mom... Coca-Cola wants me to write a website. What could I, what should I charge? You know, this was 2006. She said, I don't know, but 10 grand sounds like a round number, you know, quote them 10 grand. So I did, and I did the website for them and they loved it. Um, Looking back, yeah, looking back, I don't don't know that it was necessarily the best piece of work that I've produced, but but I worked very hard and I did a lot of research on web copywriting and, and what the best practices were then. And I was pretty pleased with my deliverable. And then Vodacom came to me, a division within Vodacom, and they said, have you got any web copywriting experience? And I said, well, I've just done Coke. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that. And and the same thing happened to me um, about five years ago. A radio station approached me and said, can you write radio commercial? And I'd never written a radio commercial in my life. I said, absolutely. And then I spent the next, I don't know how long, researching radio commercials and learning what I could. And I did a course on Udemy and, and now I write radio every week. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite, favorite things to do, right? Radio scripts. 
Okay. Um, but I'd never done it when, when I was asked to do it. And, and a couple of days ago, a client asked me to do a piece of work that I'd ne certainly never done in that format before. Um, and I spent days researching best practice and then checked with a friend who does it a lot and just confirmed that my understanding of it and her understanding of it were the same. And yeah, it's due, it's due on Thursday. Believe that you can do the thing even if you've never done it, provided that you can find out how to do it. That's my advice. I was actually approached yesterday to do uh, some ghost writing and I agreed straight off the bat because it's something that's always interested me. And as I put the phone down, I thought, holy crap, I don't know. The first thing about ghost writing, um, the internet is a wonderful resource. There's two things that you have access to that I didn't have access to when I did the Coke site. The one is the internet. Uh, you can find out how to do anything. The other is very cheap, very cheap online training. And some of those courses are really good. And the third is you have people like me. So all you need is somebody who does ghostwriting to check that what you found on the internet is true. And then you'll be fine. You, so you just need people around you who've done it. Yeah. And then yeah. you'll be, okay, you know. And, and just by the way, when, when and if you do do the ghostwriting job and you have questions, you now know someone who does it. So you pick up the phone and you say, help, I'm stuck. <laughs> you see, this is the positive spin-off of doing a podcast is that you meet people like you. So awesome. Thank you. What would you say is the number one skill required to thrive in the freelance environment? Uh, it's not a skill. It's, skill implies that it's a talent, but I think it's an attitude. Yeah. Um, and it's the attitude of treating your freelancing as a small business and yourself as a business owner. That's not a skill. That's, that's just an attitude. And that is the way you survive. You can be as good as you like and still not make it. You can be as talented as anything. You can be highly skilled and, and your business can still fail. You need to be a shit hot small business owner. Well, even to, to be a, a shit hot small business manager is even more important than being an owner. That's what makes you survive as a freelancer. Not, not, there's no skill. It's attitude. Just as another going down the rabbit hole, I had a, a kind of initial meeting with an advertising firm a couple of weeks ago. And the person who was chatting to me asked me what my daily rate would be. She was saying, is this your rate? So I'm like, yes, but you know, it is it's flexible to a degree based on the scope of the work and um, how many hours they would require me for and, and that kind of thing. And my ability outside of the hours that they require me to accrue additional work to balance out what they're paying me. And she said that not a lot of freelancers have got that approach because she'd interviewed a couple of other freelancers who were, this is my daily rate. If you can't afford it, then fuck off. Which approach is better? You know, is it better to build relationships with potential clients? and be willing to take a little bit of a hit on the, the bottom line. Obviously, you're not going to do it to a degree where you are uh, screwing yourself over. But um, surely it's, I don't know, in my mind, it's better to kind of be a little bit more flexible than, than want X. And if they're not prepared to, to deliver that amount, you don't get the work at all. So it depends. <laughs> I hate answering questions with it depends, but I'm going to do it now. <laughs> so I'm one of the writers who is not, not very flexible on my hourly rate. Um, that is the rate. And if you can't afford that, then I will work with you to shave the deliverable. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'll find elements of the job that maybe are not as important as the strategic ones, and then we won't do those. Or if the volume of work you're giving me is so big that I can discount it, then I will. Or if you're a regular, then I'll discount it. Or if you are an NGO, then I'll discount it. So if there's a very good reason, I'll be flexible. I'll be very flexible. Um, but by and large, I'm one of the freelancers who says my rate is X, take it or leave it. And actually, I'm so strict, I guess you could say, about that, that 
I send my rate card through in the first correspondence. So the client will email me and say, hi, Tiffany, I found you on Google. We need a corporate profile. How, does, how do you work? And I'll write back and say, thanks so much for approaching me. I'd love to help you with a corporate profile. I've attached my rate card and a bio. It, it, you know, to, to make quoting go a bit quicker, I've listed some questions. If you could give me the answers, then I can start to put together a quote or we can book a quick call. And I literally send through my rate card in that first response because yeah. if they're scared off by my twelve ninety an hour, then I don't know if we're going to work together. So I am a little bit rigid in that way. But where I'm more flexible is when the client presents me with a brief, um, the quote will vary based on things like the volume of work, so the, the quote will come down if there's, you know, the, I'll, I'll discount if there's more work. The urgency of the turnaround, so I charge more for quick. How much research and material review and interviewing and reading I need to do, because I charge for that. And also how many sets of changes they want, because they get one set free, but if they want a second set, then I bill for that. Mm-hmm. And if they want SEO, if it's web copy, then I bill for that. And if they want, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, lots and lots of interviews and meetings, then I bill for that. So, you know, there's always room to reduce a rate in return for loyalty. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying to you is know who your friends are and when they are giving you a lot of work or regular work or, or sexy work or even shit paying work that, you know, that doesn't appeal to you money wise, but that you've always wanted to try, yeah. then you can absolutely give a discount. It's your business. You do what you want to do, yeah. but always give a reason. So if you can discount a rate, an hourly rate, a day rate, whatever, always give a reason. Don't just do it because it's very hard to come back from that. So you yeah. need to say, I'm giving you the volume discount or the regulars discount or the NGO discount or the whatever, flexible deadline yeah. discount. Always give the discount a name. Cool. Look at your rate card. Look at your rate card. I've also got a, I've got a, I've got like a technique for that. So when you're deciding on your rate, either if you're a new freelancer or you're an existing freelancer and you're trying to sanity check your rates, there are two methods. The one is you go with the industry. In other words, you find out what your colleagues are charging. You, you join an organization like the Southern African Freelancers Association. You look up the ad talent salary surveys and, and you work it out based on that. So that's option one, which I don't like yeah. because it's not customized enough to me and my skills. Option two is you, you work out what you need and you start there. So let's say, for example, that you need 50 grand a month. Okay. Yeah. You need 50 grand a month in order to cover your fixed and variable expenses have a bit left over to save and enjoy your life. So eat out and buy stuff and, you know, do whatever you do, feed yeah. your dogs, whatever. So let's say that, your, that that 50 grand is your X, your number that you need every month. What you then do is you multiply that by 12, okay, and you get 600K, and then you divide that by 10. And the reason we divide that by 10 is that as freelancers, we typically are not equally busy 12 months of the year. Most freelancers have at least a month, but usually two months where business is quiet. For many of us, it's December, January. For me, it's December, April. I don't know why. It used to be December, January, but now it's December, April. And so what I do is I usually take a lot of time off in April. And so you divide 600K by 10 to get 60, okay? You then decide how many days a month you are going to work. If you're going to work all of the working days of the month, you divide your 60K by 21. Let me just do this on my calculator so that I get my numbers right because I'm a writer, not an accountant. (laughs) Divide it by 21, right. So that's going to give you 2857. You then decide how many hours a day you're going to work. Now, let's say that you're a mom and you have three kids and you only want to work half day, then you can divide that by four or six working hours a day. But if you're me and you're a workaholic, then you're going to divide that by eight hours. And so what you're going to get is 357 rand an hour. Now, I'm not ever going to charge anyone 357 rand an hour because that's ridiculously low. Why is it low? Because you need to look, once you have that base hourly rate, you need to look at your weight. And your weight is not how much you weigh, but it's whether you are lightweight in terms of experience, medium weight, or heavyweight. 
So because I've been doing this for 4,000 zillion years, I'm a heavyweight, which means that I would multiply that base hourly rate by probably two, two and a half to three. And that'll take me, if I do it now and times by two and a half, takes me to 892, which means that I can't drop lower than 890 an hour and, and feed myself. Do you understand? So 890 is now my base below which I can't negotiate. Okay. So if you do this yourself based on your monthly needs and how many hours a day you're going to work and how many days a month you're going to work, then you get to a place where you know your minimum and then anything above that is negotiable. So that's how I do it. It just helps me to sanity check myself. But also I used to put my rates up a little bit every year. Uh, and I usually do that in July, not in January, but I, I kept my rates where they were for about three years. And then I, I put them up at the beginning of 2020, just before coronavirus. <laughs> and all of my clients were totally fine with it, except one. And she has been with me so many years that I said, you know what, it's fine. I'll keep my old rate for you and everybody else can go on to the new rate. Have you had to ever make a big jump on your rates? Like, you know, putting it up by 300 bucks or whatever, or has it always been no. incremental? I, I never put it up more than 10%. Okay. Never, ever, ever. Okay. That's the most. Yeah. Um, and actually this year, um, this year it went up, I think eight. Uh, and, and actually if I look at my rate when I started in 2005, I think it was about 300 bucks an hour. I don't have the maths brain to do this, but if you start at 300 bucks an hour in 2005 and you end at my current rate, which is 1200 bucks an hour in 2020, and if you worked it out, to see how much I'd increased by every year, you'd see that it was around 10%. Okay, year. okay. All right. I'm just interested to, to know how other people do it. There's not a lot of resources because a lot of places, when I was setting my rates initially, they did what your first option was, is just look at your industry-related rate and charge an average. And I just felt like that's a very bad way to go. Especially if you look at like a per word rate, I don't know how people charge a per word rate. Um, four rand a word. It's ridiculous. Bullshit. Yeah. Per word bullshit. Literally bullshit. It comes from the media, which sadly is a dying industry and where people have been underpaid for 20 years. Oh. So per word rates, yeah, we need to move away from them. And actually, I think we should move away from the hourly rate thing as well and charge for value, but that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm cognizant of your time. Are you happy to end off with the quick fire round? Yeah, I've prepared Ooh. for it even. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so first question, define success. Success is freedom. Okay. Well, that was a good answer. <laughs> success means the freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, where I want, for as long as I want, and then stop when I've had enough. Is there a specific routine which you believe co contributes to your success? I read a lot. Um, I read a lot. I read, I read first thing in the morning. I read last thing at night. I read in the bath. I listen to audiobooks when I can't read. And reading makes me better at everything it makes me better at my work it makes me better at my life it makes me interesting and interested and that wasn't actually the answer that i prepared in response to your question but the routine that i believe contributes to my success now that you've asked it like that yeah. is reading on that note if all the books <laughs> in the world suddenly spontaneously combusted except for one what would it be and why so i thought about this question a lot and there's only one book that i that I currently cannot live without. And that is the book by Sam Beck Bessinger, which is called How to Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown-Up. I've read it about three times and I learn something from it every time I read it. And I absolutely love it. And it's probably in my top five books of all time. And then the other four books of all time are, are fiction. So yeah, that's, that's the one that I currently could not live without. Yeah, it would be that.
Awesome. Awesome. What do you do when you're not working on your business? I know that you are a self-proclaimed <laughs> workaholic. So um, what do you do outside of, of working time? So the only, when, I'm, when I'm not working, I'm, I'm with my family. When I'm not with my family, there are only three things that I do. I read, <laughs> I paint, watercolors at the moment, but different, all different media. And I learn about investing. So that's my other obsession. When I'm not working, I learn about money. Um, I read about equities, I read about listed property, I read about currencies and I read about, you know, tax-free investing and yeah, I'm a bit obsessed with the, with personal finance. So I read a lot about money. Based on the experience you've had both in life and business up to this point, if you were to give your 20 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be buy Amazon and Apple shares because they'll rise by 900% in 10 years. Well, you should have bought Tesla shares at the beginning of COVID because they've done something. I did. Oh, did you? You know what I did? I I bought them before COVID. When when Elon Musk threw that whatever it was at the window of his bucky and it shattered, the share price absolutely tanked very briefly. And I bought Tesla shares that day. Oh wow. I mean not very many, but but still. Um I bought Tesla shares when when he threw the when he threw the brick at the window. Um and I've held on to them. So they've they've made yeah, about two hundred percent in the last year. (laughs) Well, <laughs> don't ask me about the stock exchange that's not my my forte if you had asked me about the stock exchange in january 2019 i would have looked at you blankly and said i'm a writer that's not my thing but i realized that what i was doing was i was investing with my eyes closed so yep. i was handing my money over to a broker and just believing everything he said and paying the fees and not asking questions and i figured that's stupid like I would never do that with my business. So why am I doing that with, with the proceeds of my business? And then I started reading about money and, and then I decided that I would no longer give liberty any of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's another trick of investing and that's uh, never, ever panic. That's great advice though for, for life in general is don't panic. Don't panic. Nothing good ever comes from a panic. Yeah. Where can people get hold of you? I'm super easy to find provided that you spell my name right. So when, when my, husband, my husband and I met on a blind date and when he Googled me, to try and see what I looked like. He spelt my name wrong um, and, and didn't find me. So if you're going to look for me on Google, you've got to spell it right. So it's T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-M-A-R-K-M-A-N, Mark Man, not Mark Ham, which is what my husband looked for. Um, so if you Google me, you'll find me everywhere. But if you want specific handles, I'm at Tiffany Markman on Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, I'm Tiffany Markman Writing and Training. On LinkedIn, Tiffany Markman. On YouTube, the channel's called Tiffany Markman and the website is tiffanymarkman.coza. That's awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. Um, I really do appreciate the time uh, you've taken and all the, the advice that you have freely given as well. And yeah, I hope that we can stay in contact. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, yeah, have a, have a great day further. Thanks. You too. Keep in touch. Yes, will do. Thanks, Tiffany. Follow the Business of Podcast on my website, megamillist.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel at Megamillist. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Megan Darcy, M-E-G-A-N-D apostrophe A-R-C-Y. Chat soon.